Good, yeah, just a couple of comments before I get into it, I guess. It was great to hear from Naomi last week and Claudine and Robin as well. And that just the investment in your kids as a ministry and equally in marriages is just so valuable. And just hearing it again, I just couldn't help but think, oh, God is speaking to us about this. Like, we've got to regard these things, uh, even just talking with Neil yesterday about it. These things are really important to be viewed as uh, equally valuable than everything else we do external to those things. But that was great. And uh, yes, I'm going to talk about mission and culture. Uh, and my name is Quincy. I'm one of the leaders here. And uh, there are lots of ways to engage with culture, but there's only one gospel. There is only one good news story that can transcend generations and can penetrate the hearts of those seemingly too tough, too independent, too intelligent to require it. And that is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what I'm going to proclaim to you today. Our mission is continuing. It continues into Acts 17 as we follow Paul. And he's an apostle. He's a person who has got this good news in his heart, and he's going around various cities to deliver it. He's been to Thessalonica. He's been to Berea. And now, in Acts 17, he arrives in Athens, awaiting the arrival of two of his friends, Silas and Timothy. And for the context, I need to tell you about Athens. Athens was a city filled with artistic beauty, and I have to apologize to anyone who speaks Greek properly. Uh, I don't at the moment, uh, so forgive me if I pronounce anything incorrectly. It was only yesterday that Naomi told me that you don't uh, say Areopagus, Areopagus. So thank you, Naomi, for that. There you go, Areopagus. So I'm going to say that properly from now on, <laughs> hopefully, but I might get the others wrong. So um, nowadays, they've actually excavated parts of Athens so that you can go there and look at what was there when Paul was there. And Paul enters this city, and he looks around at these amazing structures, and he goes into a Roman forum, a place that would be used as a marketplace, or a Greek, uh, I'm going to say agora, sure, uh, uh, a place filled with civic structures, as you can see in some of the pictures, and he sees amazing temples as well, temples to Athena and Zeus, and he appreciates them all. He goes sightseeing. He takes in the culture. Like if you went to Berlin, you would go and take in the sights and sounds and smells and tastes of that city. And he demonstrates the fact that this gospel can enter into any culture. He can walk into that city and start talking about Jesus. And although people might not understand, they want to know more. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to read Acts 17 verses 16 to 34. It is quite a long passage. Um, so I will do voices to keep it entertaining for you, um, but let me pray first. Father God, thank you for bringing us together this morning to continue looking at your heart for mission and receiving your heart for mission. Thank you that you gave it to Paul so long ago, and yet we can look at him and go, wow, what a figure. How could I possibly be like him? It's the same Holy Spirit that's in him that will be in us and is in us today, and I pray that you would just touch us again, motivate us for mission once again this morning. Okay, so here we go. It'll come up on the screen uh, behind me. Acts 17, 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplaces day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this is because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting at the Areopagus, where they said to him, 
May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what, that may, what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about the listen, and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as, he, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, and they should, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, hmm, we want to hear more. We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damari, and a number of others. So there you are. Acts, 16, Acts 17, 16 to 34. Paul hands us another hefty lesson in mission when he gets to Athens. And from that passage, I took out seven ways that we can combine mission with culture. And uh, I just want to kind of lay them out to you. And they're going to come quite thick and fast, um, but they're punchy and they're quick. So you can take them away and apply them as you will. And then I'm going to rehearse Paul's preach that I kind of just read to you there in the Areopagus and expound on those verses. This is for anyone who finds himself here today wondering, who is this God you're talking about? It's really a part of the whole preach is dedicated to you, just so I can elaborate on some of the things that Paul has said and preach the gospel to you. And then at the end, uh, I'm going to hand over to Sophie, and we're going to have communion together. So that's going to be good as well. It's going to be great. So here we go. Part one, seven ways to combine mission with the culture you're in. Number one, don't waste time. Paul understands the urgency of mission. He gets straight into Athens, and while waiting, he goes sightseeing. He takes in the totems, the temples, the pillars. He absorbs the culture and then starts to speak. We can't afford to waste time in our towns and villages, in our neighborhoods, in the homes that we live in. We can't waste time waiting for the culture to be ready to receive it, receive the gospel. We've got to get there first and scratch where the culture is, is itching. So when you have a conversation with someone, you begin to ask the Holy Spirit in your head, what is it that this person really needs to hear? It might just be a kind word. It might be nothing for that moment, which is just fine. But don't waste time. Don't wait till someone is ready. I'm still, you, know, you might say to yourself, I'm still waiting for them to be ready to receive the gospel. But we don't know when they're going to be ready. So we've just got to start speaking like Paul does. Don't waste time. 
Number two, get distressed. Verse 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Athens is full of pagan monuments and temples, and Paul's spirit, and it says in the, in the notes around this text that it wasn't the Holy Spirit that was dis- distressed, it was his personal spirit. Something in him was griping, was getting to him, and it caused him to act. And in the Old Testament, uh, we see evidence of this happening with God. So uh, there's a story all about a guy called Jonah, uh, where a town called Nineveh, a city called Nineveh, Uh, is very, very wicked. They're doing some of the most horrible stuff you can imagine. They're offending God. And it says the wickedness of Nineveh came up to God. God noticed it and was distressed about it. And so he did something. He got this guy, Jonah, said, Jonah, go and preach to this city. Tell them to repent. And uh, well, you can read the rest of the story in the book of Jonah. It's very short. It's actually really good bedtime reading if you've got time for that. Um, But you can read the rest of that story. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later on. But God gets distressed when people are sinning and wicked and rebelling against him. And Paul enters a town where people are doing those things by worshipping other gods. And he gets distressed. And I just want to ask you, how are you doing on the distress ometer? Are you quite chilled about the fact that people around you are just happy to go indoors at the, on a Friday and watch Netflix until they have to get out and go to work on a Monday? Like, is that, is that distressing you? Are you worried for them, a concern that they're missing life outside and they're missing community? It's an evidence of an idol. Wherever the time and the money goes, that's where the idol is. And we have now got five barbers in Oxted. Why? It must be the most well-groomed place you've ever seen. People with like perfect like hipster beards and stuff. Like, it must be amazing. But why do we have them? Because beauty is an idol. Because culture says you've got to look good, you've got to impress, you've got to have the right length of beard with the right oil in there and all that stuff. And it's bizarre, confused about that. But beauty being an idol, that's what it does. It draws you in. Or indulgence, coffee shops, bakeries, Uh, I read a stat recently in the news that one in five children in the US are obese and one in 10 in the UK are approaching obese. And it's, again, an idol. It's something that says, you can just eat as much as you want uh, and consume and consume and consume sugary things and all that. Again, it's where money goes. It's where time goes. Or even if you're at school at the moment, popularity. People are doing some outrageous things, some horrendous things just to get someone else somewhere in the world to click like on their status or on what they do, don't do it. Don't fall for other idols, but in turn, get distressed about when other people do. Get distressed about that. That's what Paul does. We need to get so distressed that we're motivated to act. Number three is acknowledge who you are amongst. And Paul approaches the people of Athens in a different way to the way he's approached people in other cities. So in other cities, he'll do of some miracles and talking. In other cities, he'll do lots of miracles and a little bit of talking. And when he gets to Athens, he knows that their culture is discussion and debate. He knows that there's people there that are are very um, kind of people who go, hmm, a lot of the time and think about things and challenge each other and pose ideas and, and all that kind of thing. He knows that. Even it says in verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about the and listening to the latest ideas. He knows that. He's absorbed the culture, and so he gets right on with it. And we, too, have to do that. We've got to know who God has put us among. There are some people in my life who would love uh, a half an hour to an hour and a half discussion about uh, the theology and the, the evidence and the, the, the things that Jesus said, but then there are other people in my life who I know just need a miracle. 
Like they've got a, a bad shoulder and I need to offer to pray for them. And if it gets healed, I can tell them who did it and then they'll go pursuing him. So we have to be aware. We've got to acknowledge who we're amongst. Is it, what is their burden of proof? What do they need to know or see in order to believe or at least ask more questions? Number four is understand or comprehend the culture. And Paul gets to grips with it very quickly. And as he's talking, he gets invited in his address. And I'm aware you said something earlier on, Areopagus. Yes? Yes, good. Okay, that's fine. Which means Hill of Arez, which essentially this place, the Areopagus, was a long-established body with considerable authority over civil and religious life in Athens. And in this setting, Paul is able to say to the people, I see, you are very religious. You are, their religiosity is credit to them by Paul. He kind of wins them over. And then we get this part from verse 8, which says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul's already giving out the message He's proclaiming the good news of Jesus freely because it's part of their culture. Not only that, but he actually references other parts of their culture to back up his points or to illustrate what he's talking about. He says, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And he's quoting Erastus' poem, um, Phenomena. I think that's how you say it. He's actually saying, look, you guys are already aware of some of this stuff that I'm talking about. Why, Why don't you investigate further? Now, another person who is excellent at this is Jesus himself. There's a story about him in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, It's in one of those where you can read about him approaching a woman at a well. And the woman at the well uh, has literally just come with a, a jar to draw the water out. And she starts talking about the actual water in the well. But Jesus contextualizes what he's going to say and starts talking about water that will not allow you to go thirsty ever again. He's talking about the water of life. He's talking about relationship with him. And Jesus does this uh, kind of amazing thing where he sort of speaks into her context and says, well, it's like this. You're getting water that will make you thirsty again. I could give you water. That means you'll never be thirsty again. And she's drawn into that conversation. He's very, very good at that. Now, that is a little bit more difficult to sort of translate and apply to our culture because our culture is beginning to look very, very different, even from 10, 20 years ago. Um, but I did a little bit of investigation for this, and there was a guy called Gert Hofstede from a company called IBM who studied for 10 years uh, the differences in cultures within the company between countries. So you could call it cross-cultural company uh, kind of study. And um, he established a kind of rating system to discern what... Um, certain companies in certain countries were good at and what they were bad at and how they could better network together to make their cultures fit together. And just to summarize, from this study, for the UK, he discerned that the UK was becoming more individualistic. He discerned that individualism was leading to a decline in community, sharing of ideas and beliefs, and the pursuit of privacy and self-fulfillment instead And so he's done the hard work for us. He's studied this, and he's saying, look, this is the way your culture is going. People are going to become more internalized, more individualistic, uh, and he kind of put that on his report. And his report is a couple of decades old now, but people still use it as a basis 
for helping them build stronger relations between companies in different cultures. The other thing that he discerned was that people are no longer concerned about the long-term uncertainty and that actually everything becomes about the moment. Everything becomes about now. And this is a, a bit of a challenge for us to think, right, how do we uh, preach the gospel into this culture, into a culture where people are actually withdrawing and not wanting to share ideas and beliefs, and people are no longer thinking about the long, long term. They're only thinking about now and where they can get their next donut from. Um, what, what is the... Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's what I'm thinking about. That's not in my notes. <laughs> where am I going to get my next donut? No, we're not going to get there. But the point is they're looking, they're looking shorter. They're not looking long term. So two things came to mind for me for this. is We're a community here at King's Church. We're a family. And we have people over, have each other over. We go for walks and do stuff with each other like that, which is awesome. That is going to become increasingly countercultural. As soon as someone's going to look at you and go, what? You go to a place where there's lots of other people on a Sunday and you all sit like at least one chair apart from one another and then you lift your hands up and then why? Why would you do that? They were, they're going to ask this question and we've got to be ready to respond with, well, we're a community. We do things together. We're actually not really in line with what the UK culture is at the moment, or even the individualistic thing uh, of, of people withdrawing into their homes. And I think I told you a long time ago, a lady downstairs from me, we had her over for dinner, and she'd never been in anyone else's flat in 14 years. We're in a block of six, and she'd never been upstairs or, or across the hall, but she came over and she enjoyed her time with us. And as for the long-term, short-term thinking, um, it kind of gives us an opportunity to, to ask a question which... Again, might be a bit random, might be a bit of a curveball when you're talking to someone who doesn't think the same way. But you might ask that, that classic question, so, what do you think happens when you die? And people will go, what? <laughs> Why would you ever ask me that? It's all about the here and now. But again, you can say, well, I think it's important. I think we've got to consider these things. But perhaps in Life Group in the next couple of weeks, you can discuss uh, ways of proclaiming the good news into our current cultural setting and where we're heading. So that was a slightly longer one, comprehend the culture. The fifth one is be engaged. And um, our man Paul, he could have taken one look at Athens and legged it to a much easier town. But instead, he goes right into the middle. And again, referring to this story about a man called Jonah, Jonah is asked to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel, preach the good news. And he does leg it away from Nineveh and says, no thanks God, I don't want to go there, they're all pagans, I'm not interested. But God gives him another chance. And I just want to speak briefly to anyone who is feeling a bit discouraged about this whole mission thing, or a bit demotivated by it, because God is, uh, is loving and he's not looking down on anyone going, oh come on, you should do more mission. He's, he's looking down going, I love you, uh, I've put this great spirit within you, um, don't be down, like, let's go for it, let's go again. Let's go again. I'll give you another chance, just like I gave Jonah another chance to go to Nineveh. I'm going to rescue you out of this discouragement you're in and send you again. And as we build towards Alpha again in January, we've got to catch hold of that. We've got to catch hold of God's heart for second chances and giving us opportunities. And if you feel like you blew it once with someone or blew it last time we did Alpha and, and feel like that has gone cold and that particular person doesn't want to hear from you, that's okay. You don't have to continue inviting them to things. You can continue praying for them and waiting to see what happens. But I encourage you, go back to God and say, what do I do? What do I do next? I'm feeling down about this, but what, what do you want me to do with this particular person? 
next. Just want to encourage you as well that three years ago we did those prayer cards for the first time and I just rattled on about them for ages to be quite frank with you. And, uh, and I had someone on my card and they didn't become a Christian that year, but this year they've become a Christian. So just to encourage you, even if you put someone on your card like four or five years ago, God remembers and then a number of years later maybe they become a Christian. And we're working on a culture of mission at church here at King's and I think we're doing really well. Again, I'm really proud of the amount of people. We had the biggest alpha we've ever had last time. So well done. Please continue to encourage one another and be encouraged by that. Uh, I am. I'm motivated by it. You encourage me by by just bringing people and witnessing to them. Uh, So well done. But let's re-engage for the next alpha, for the build-up. Have those conversations now so that in January you can invite someone on to that course. Number six, be okay with being labeled strange. Um, The word, uh, you can guess that I don't actually have a problem with that uh, most of the time. Uh, But the word, and some people do, but that's okay. The word that philosophers use to describe Paul in this text is translated as babbler. And uh, it's uh, it's the word in Greek, and I'm going to see if I get this right, spermologos. Yes, thank you, Fortini. Yeah, okay, there's a word called spermologos, which literally means one who picks up seeds. One who picks up seeds, and it's a term that suggests someone who's like a bird who pecks at the ground and then flings a seed up in the air without even thinking about it. It's like he described Paul as this guy who just spouts off ideas without really understanding them, and they're basically taking the mick. They're basically taking the mick out of Paul by calling him this word. And my point is that we need to be okay with getting in the same boat as Paul. Because people in our culture are going to perceive us as strange for worshipping Jesus, but we mustn't allow this to present, prevent us from going on mission. And if you're at school, college, don't allow anyone's opinion about Jesus to stop you following him. Don't let anyone's uh, harsh words or rebuke or laughing at you cause you to, to put it down and leave it just because it's an easier path. No, it's much more valuable than that, following Jesus. And besides, this came to me just as we had a discussion in the office last week, Our culture is weird in a number of places. For example, ask a Christian, in fact, ask a non-Christian parent to explain Halloween to you, okay? The whole year, you say, don't don't wear that outfit. That doesn't quite work. It looks a bit strange. I'll give you your clothes to wear. The whole year, you say, don't go around and scare old people. That's that's bad. The the whole year, you say, don't go around the neighborhood at nighttime. Could be dangerous. Don't know who's out there. All year round, you say, don't take sweets from strangers. And all year round, you give these instructions, and then they go, right, kids, the 31st of October, guess what we're going to do? We're going to wear some outfits, we're going to go and scare some old people, we're going to go wander around the neighborhood at night, then we're going to knock on people's doors and ask them for sweets. That is strange. Why would you do that? And also, why would you tell your kids not to do it all year round, and then one day go, but there's this exception, it's this day? We're not the only people who can be strange. That is a strange concept to get your head around. Maybe I found it more strange than you, but it's okay to be labelled strange. It's okay to, to not quite fit in with the culture, and that's one of the things that you try and mash and mission and culture together, and it's like, oh, it doesn't quite fit. And there, there are going to be some things that just feel strange and look strange to people outside the church that we do here, and vice versa. So get okay with just being labelled strange for being a Christian. I'm pretty used to it. You can probably tell. Um, but st- step number seven, point number seven, prepare to proclaim. So the second half of the text, 
Paul is invited to explain what he means. And this is absolute gold if you're a Christian. If someone invites you to explain what you mean, it doesn't mean you have to give them your life story. It doesn't mean you have to give them your testimony. It doesn't mean you have to say all the right verses in the right sequence. It just means you need to explain what you mean. And when you say to someone, so has anyone ever explained the gospel to you? And they say, well, no. You can say, all right, well, let me explain it. So you need to be prepared to proclaim it. And that's number seven. So there's seven ways to combine mission with the culture you're in. And I'm just going to move on to part two now. And this is really aimed at anyone who is like an Athenian philosopher in this place who's going, who is this God that you're talking about? Well, I'm just going to proclaim uh, him to you now. So some people here today believe the God of the Bible is an unknown God. They've never heard about him, they've never seen him, they've never experienced him, but I want to tell you that Yahweh is the God of the Bible. He is three persons, but one God. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three individual persons, and one God, all at the same time. And this is who I'm proclaiming to you. I hope that's clear. Now, some people in our time suppose that our God only resides in beautiful, ornate buildings, in cathedrals, in cities, or church buildings that look gorgeous. Um, But the God of heaven and earth is massive. He is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He is amazing. And he can't be confined. Trust me, if you read some of the Bible, there was a time where they tried to put God into a box. And it doesn't work. He doesn't fit in a box. No, our God, he doesn't need a house. He, he doesn't need anything. Uh, he doesn't even need us. He doesn't even need our good deeds. It literally doesn't matter how good you are, how many good deeds you've done. It doesn't matter how many people you have helped cross the road. You can't win God's approval in that way. You can't win by offering deeds. Our God is not a taker like all the other gods. Our God is a giver. He gives us everything. He gives us life. He gives us breath and He gave us Jesus. He gave us his own son to prove his love for us. And a long, 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 long time ago, God made all things, including us. First, he made Adam and Eve, and then he populated the entire world. Nations rose and empires came and went, and Yahweh orchestrated it all. Yahweh is sovereign. It's he who determines the limits of nations and the seas. It's He, who is not contained by time or space, he can see everything from every perspective and feel every emotion you've ever felt. He's been through what you've been through. And God declares his majesty right in front of our noses. Simply walking around the earth, you can see his handiwork. Like an intricate network of small to tiny to infinitesimal tiny signs that go, Yahweh is God, and you should worship him. There are so many things that point us to him. He's ready to respond to you right here, right now. He's ready for you to invite him into your life. He's been ready since you were born. And we're only allowed to have another breath because he maintains everything in his strength. We're in God's image. We're made in his image. He's infinitely diverse, and that's why all of you look different. That's why everybody looks completely different to one another. And our God is alive just like we're alive. And you can't confine him to a wooden totem or a stone statue or a golden Buddha because he moves and he breathes and he's with us even now. He stirred us to worship this morning. He got us out of bed. But there's a big difference between our God 
and us. Our God is holy, perfect, and we are not. Now in the past, God might have overlooked such ignorance of him, but now he commands everyone to repent of their sins. And that means you too. One day he will judge the world according to all that we've done and unless we've placed our trust in his perfect son Jesus, who rose from the dead, will be found guilty of sin. Now, everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone falls short of perfection. You only need to look at your newspaper and compare the amount of stories that are caused by imperfect people to the amount of stories that are due to accidents or the amount of stories that are due to uh, natural disasters, and you will see a huge imbalance. Imperfect people who sin are the problem. And that sin is a problem for everyone. We need rescuing from it. But Jesus, but Jesus, God's only son, he came to earth in human form 2,000 years ago, 100% man, 100% God, and he lived a life I could not live. He never committed a sin. He never thought a sinful thought. He never did anything bad. Now, there were enough people around Jesus at the time. If he had stubbed his toe and said something out of turn, it would have been written down. He was pursued for three years, listened to, analyzed. People picked apart his arguments and found themselves wanting. But Jesus, Jesus is the reason we can be free. Jesus is God, and God so loves us that he can't stand to be without us. We even sang about it earlier on, and God the Father sent Jesus, his Son, to live that perfect life so that we could place our faith in him, and our sin could be placed upon him through faith. And in so doing, he would set us free. He would allow us to have a relationship with God that we all crave, yet try and fill with other things. We try and fill with money or relationships or drugs or alcohol or whatever it might be. We try and fill the hole that's inside of us, crying out to God, where actually there is only Jesus who can fulfill it. For after dying and dealing with your sin in the grave, he rose from the dead. He was resurrected and appeared physically to over 500 people eating fish for breakfast with some before returning to heaven to reign with the Father where he sat down. He said, it's done. It's finished. I've been to earth. I've done what I needed to do. I've made a way for human beings to be free from their sin because I love them. Father and Son, we're united once again in heaven. And the good news is you can be united with God today. You too can be forgiven for all the sins you've committed, all the things you've thought, said, and done wrong and will do in the future if you'll only submit to the one true God who loves you so much, if you'll only put your life in his hands and invite him in. Jesus has risen from the dead and he's calling you. It's now the time to put your faith in Jesus and receive forgiveness for your sins. Would you do a favor, do me a favor and shut your eyes for a few minutes? That'd be great. I want to speak to those who've heard that for the first time this morning, or maybe the third time, or maybe the hundredth time, but suddenly something is different about it. Suddenly your heart is thumping very, very fast, and you're realizing, hang on a minute, I need to respond to this. And if you want to put your faith in Jesus this morning, if you want him to become Lord of your life, 
and be free from your sin. And I'm going to ask you to put your hand in the air now. Okay, thank you. You can put your hand down. And for those who put their hands up, to do that is very, very simple. To invite the God of the universe into your life is a simple prayer. And I'm going to pray it. I'm going to ask you to pray after me. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the sins that I've committed. I'm sorry for offending you and for offending those around me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please come into my life now and send the Holy Spirit to fill me. You are my Lord. Amen. Amen. You can open your eyes again. That's the power of God. That's who's moving among us. That's who's motivating us to go on mission. And if you didn't pray that prayer this time round, but you're like one of the philosophers in Athens, then I would like to invite you to Alpha. I'd like you to come along and join us on that. If you're sitting there thinking, I would like to hear more on this subject, then we want you to come and join us. And if you put your hand up there, I, I know some people did, then come and see me at the end. I just want to pray that through with you. I just want to talk it through with you as well. And in conclusion, there are many ways to engage a culture, but there's only one gospel that transcends them all. And we can look at Paul and be overwhelmed and think, how could I ever be like him? Or we look at him and go, I want some of that. I want to be motivated enough to get in the middle of it and start and continue even going on mission. Amen.